I want to begin with uh, giving a little bit of the history of the temple, and certainly about the Temple Mount and its role and significance in Jewish history, certainly, but also in Jewish life today, in Jewish philosophy, in Jewish yearning, in the Jewish mission. Uh, so let's start all the way from the beginning. So there's this idea called the Evan Shesia, which means the foundational rock. And in Jewish literature, we talk about God creating the world, but the beginning of that process is from Temple Mount. So like the holiest place in the world, the place where God began first to create, is Jerusalem, is Israel, and it's right in the middle. And Jerusalem and Temple Mount specifically are, um, are the... Uh, the beginning of it all, the, uh, the you know where it all started. Now, uh, already with Abraham, uh, he's tra- he is instructed to travel and go to some mountain. Which mountain does he end up going and bringing uh, Isaac as a sacrifice? Before that is stopped in the last minute. That, of course, is also Temple Mount. Um, and Jacob, Jacob, we already spoke about this previously, but Jacob is traveling east, and he goes to Chor, and he turns around, and goes back to Jerusalem, back to Temple Mount, to pray where his forefathers prayed, which is Abraham and Isaac. And there, he has a memorable dream, where he goes to sleep there, and then the ladder ascends to heaven, and he gets, the, he gets those uh, blessings that uh, are relevant to us until this day. So, the Jewish relationship with Temple Mount begins way, 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 way back with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but even essentially it starts off with uh, the creation of the world then. Now, interestingly, the last part of Israel that was captured by the Jews in antiquity is Temple Mount. Jerusalem, indeed. Um, they, Joshua begins the capture of Israel. Uh, it's a protracted conquest and division of the land, and for you know about four four hundred fifty years, they don't have Jerusalem. So, the temple, so to speak, the portable temple that we know Moses is going to build a portable temple and going to travel with them. Uh, the portable temple is going to be with them throughout the wilderness. They they build it in the first year after they leave Egypt, and that essentially is the uh, is the focal point of, the, uh, of a permanent temple, but until it was put in a permanent temple, it was in a uh, temporary temple. Uh, but they had different stages along the way uh, before they captured Jerusalem and they purchased Temple Mount and they built a, a, a uh, finalized version of the temple. They had it uh, for 369 years in a place called Shiloh. Which is, from a group of people called the Yevusim. And that is recorded in Torah. Yeah, it's in the it's already it's already past the Torah. It's recorded, I think, in the book of of, uh, of Samuel. Yeah. The book of Samuel, where David wanted to make sure that there was no questions about the Jewish people's ownership over the over the land, even though they could have captured it by military uh, means. He decided to purchase full value Temple Mount, so that way the place where they can use to make 
the temple, you know, for hundreds of years is going to be uh, by any standard belonging to the Jewish people. How do we know that um, Jacob's dream happened at Temple Mount? Yeah, so and that's these other issues. It's hinted in the Torah. Um, so, for example, every time it says the place, an anonymous place, it's always, it's always referring to the same place. Um, so, for example, when it talks about um, Abraham, it yeah, it's cool, it's cool inside. His dream was on the Temple Mount. And right. I did not know that. Right, but if, you, but, but if you look at the, ti- the word, every time the Torah says Makom, place, in the Torah, it's referring to Temple Mount. Every time. So, we talked about building. You build a temple, Bamakrom, in the place that God selects. And Abraham sees the Makrom from distance. And Vayifga Bamakrom, and, 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 and Jacob came across the place. It's always referring to the same place. So it's not explicit in the Torah. And that's a, a question on its own right. Why is it not explicit in the Torah? Uh, even though it's hinted, kind of, uh, it uses euphemisms. Uh, but it, it, does, it, it is mentioned, but it's clarified later as well. Uh, so, King David purchases Temple Mount. Uh, his son, he doesn't, get, he doesn't merit to build it himself, even though he, he really wanted to. Uh, his son, King Solomon, builds, builds the first temple, and that is going to last for 410 years until its destruction uh, at the hands of the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar. The Jews, of course, are sent into exile, they go to Persia, they go to Babylonia, uh, a tiny fraction of the Jews stay in Israel. Um, and 70 years later, as we know, the Jewish people come back to Israel, a faction of them come back under the leadership of a fellow by the name of Zerubbabel, very interesting, memorable name, and a fellow by the name of Joshua, who was the high priest. Uh, they begin the process of rebuilding the temple, the process of rebuilding gets halted, uh, because the king of the empire at the time, King Cyrus, he initially allows all indigenous people to go back to their homelands, but also uh, to the Jewish people to go back to the temple. He gives them actually temple vessels, some of the temple vessels that he had in his, in, uh, in his um, um, possession, gives them back to the Jewish people to go back to, to Israel. They go back. Um, they start building it, and eventually they, they, they complete the building, and of course, the names of the individuals who were leading the Jews at the time are Ezra, and Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel, and Joshua, and Chagai Zechar Malachi. These are very famous people in Jewish history, and they begin the second temple era that's going to last 420 years, until it too is destroyed by the Romans, and by Titus in the year 70 of the Common Era. Uh, now, our relationship with Temple Mount doesn't end then. In fact, uh, it's going to undergo another, so to speak, destruction uh, uh, under the hands of Hadrian. Hadrian is going to, in the year 135 or 136, it's a question, uh, he's going to actually raise the Temple Mount. Temple Mount was much taller, but he employed uh, 10,000 Jewish slaves and he forced them to dig and to lower, so to speak, the mountain, to kind of destroy the morale of the people. Uh, but as we know, Temple Mount still has a power amount to holiness and, and, and meaning in our, uh, in our nation. In fact, when we pray, we always pray to Jerusalem. 
and in Jerusalem we pray towards the temple. Uh, if you are, we're, that's why we, so we always pray to the east because we're usually west of Jerusalem, the temple. If you actually went to India, you'd pray, you'd pray to the west towards Jerusalem. Uh, and indeed, Temple Mount was in the hands of, of the non-Jewish uh, conquerors in the form of the uh, in the form of the, um, the, the 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 Romans and the Byzantines and all the various empires that controlled it. And of course, it was the subject. The Holy Land was of the Crusades, and then the Ottomans came around, and then the British Mandate, and finally, 1967. The famous cry of Harabait Biadenu, Temple Mount is in our hands, uh, was uttered on the, that would be the third day of the war, so that would be like the 7th of June, 1967, 49 years and a, and a month ago. Uh, but, of course, the, you know, the question to us is, well, what's the significance of the place, and what's the difference certainly about you know, the temple? It's called Temple Mount, it's called Harabait, Bait is... Uh, a temple, a house, a house of the Beit Hamikdash, the Holy Temple, and um, the hope that we have, and a lot of people are actually planning this, is that we're going to actually rebuild another temple there. You know, where this, it's actually a mitzvah in the Torah. So the Ram starts off his laws of the temple with quoting a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah for us to build a temple. It's a verse in the Book of Exodus. Make for me, God says, make for me a temple. And we know that the location of that temple has to be in Temple Mount. Uh, so there are actually a lot of people that are talking to architects and planning for, for this to happen. In fact, um, there are many people that are quite devastated that when we had the opportunity to do it in 1967, we didn't seize it properly. Um, you know, Within hours of the capture of Temple Mount... Moshe Dayan, who is the great military mastermind, but also he was the defense minister at the time, he gave up control of Temple Mount to the Muslim Waqf, the religious governing body, uh, only a few hours after they planted an Israeli flag up there. A very controversial decision, uh, but certainly we believe collectively as a nation, that it's not that like Moshe Dayan was the one who thwarted our temple. You know, it's not like one man could say, if the nation would have been ready, then we would have gotten it. It's not like Moshe Dayan made a decision that altered the trajectory of, of, of all of Jewish history from 2,000 years of trying to, of pining to get to Temple and Temple Mount and uh, it was stopped. But I think we're kind of on the doorstep, you know. We essentially have the security control of Temple Mount, uh, and we certainly have the military means to do so. Um, Wait, but Jews aren't allowed up there. That's, that's correct. I don't understand that. What, what's... Why? I don't understand why Jews are not allowed up there. Well, that's another mitzvah of the Torah. Um, so we'll see uh, throughout the, the, the talk that there are many mitzvahs that are associated with Temple Mount and certainly with the Temple. And that, of course, should augment its significance in our eyes. But one of the mitzvahs is not to enter the Temple with a state of impurity. And what does impurity mean? Does that mean that we're dirty? No. It means anyone that has come into any form of contact with a dead person is impure vis-a-vis going into the Temple. Uh, or the Temple site, because the Temple site retained its purity or its holiness. So, 
if we were ever in a hospital, which most of us, I'm sure, were, and the hospital has a um, walls and ceilings, thus any dead body in the hospital permeates throughout the whole hospital. Anyone that's in the hospital that's dead body in the hospital becomes, in a state of ritual impure, and they're not allowed to go on top of If you walk into a cemetery to go to a funeral, or, uh, you know, so hospitals, funerals, you, you, you drive next to a cemetery that has a tree that overhangs over the cemetery, and you walk under that tree. Very complex laws of how impurity gets transmitted and acquired, and therefore all of us essentially are working with the premise that we are ritually impure, and therefore we're not allowed to go on top of mount. So that's the idea. The idea is, is that there's a mitzvah in the Torah. Nobody can go. Just about... Well, that's the thing. It's a mitzvah for Jews. So ironically, Moshe Dayan, he, he didn't know what he did, but if we're not going to build a temple there, it's very good that Jews don't go there, so it's probably preferable that the Temple Mount is not, not under kind of Jewish sovereignty, and therefore that prevents a lot of Jews from going there. In fact, there's actually a big sign. If you were to walk now in Jerusalem, and they have tours that go up to Temple Mount, there's a huge sign that says, under Jewish law, Jews are not allowed to go up here. Well, it's 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 a it's an official state of Israel sponsored placard that says that because a lot of Jews don't know like they're just turned they don't know laws that are you know they're 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 new to first time to Israel what do they know about Temple Mount they just want to see the sites and learn about the history uh, they don't know and they wouldn't want to go there if they knew it was prohibited by Torah law. Okay, so it's forbidden by Torah law. Oh yeah, it's a verse in the Torah. But it's it's not clear. Forbidden by the Israeli law. No, well, they... Yes, it is. It, well, it is forbidden. They certainly don't allow Jews. It's, it's very bizarre because, you know, in our own country, in Israel, the only people that are not allowed to go up to Temple Mountain and pray are Jews. Jews, which is bizarre. It's a way of keeping the peace, and it's a certain... But it's not a way of keeping it, it, it is because when people go up there, it gives, it gives, it gives the Muslims a, 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 just an excuse to... To start killing people. So what about Sharon? What about Sharon? Was five thousand police went there? Yes. Right. So that's happened in two thousand, and that's. Did they purify themselves before they went there? No. So. Well, so like this, Temple Mount itself is enormous. The actual um, dimensions of the temple didn't cover the entire Temple Mount. So therefore, it's, but it's, 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 it's unclear exactly, or there's a discussion as to exactly where in Temple Mount. So if this is Temple Mount, this table is Temple Mount, um, and this would be the western wall. That's the south, and that's the east. And there's the Mount of Olives right over there. And this is the Jewish quarter right behind me. This is, this is the, uh, like the 500-foot stretch of wall. That's, that's the supporting wall to Temple Mount that we know as the Western Wall. It actually goes much further in both directions. It's enormous. The, 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 the Western Wall is, is you know, it's, it's, it's very, very, very big. Um, but right a, a little bit further towards the north is the structure that was built in the year 691 that we call the Dome of the Rock. Dome of the Rock is actually not a... A mosque, it's a shrine. The mosque is further south. You notice there's two domes. There's the gold dome, and then there's the, uh, the, the metal-colored dome. Uh, that's further south. 
That is what's known as the Al-Aqsa Mosque. That's, an, that's a mosque. This is not a mosque. This is actually a shrine. Uh, and in fact, um, if you go in there, it's called Dome of the Rock, because in there, there's a huge rock. Well, they don't worship the rock because I mean, uh, Muslims don't 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 do idolatry. Is that uh, the Al Aqsa Martyr? Is that what you mean? No, the big rock. The big rock. Not not the Kaaba. The Kaaba is in Mecca. In Mecca. Right, but the the big rock that's in the shrine of the Dome of the Rock is arguably that same rock that we started off our discussion with, the Evan Shasia. It's a huge discussion. Is it? Is it not? How big is it? How big is it supposed to be? Um, but there are Jewish commentators that talk about the Dome of the Rock. The rock that's in there is indeed Evan Shasia. And that's where the... Uh, where, and now, the problem is, is that, like we said, it was raised uh, with a Z. Uh, Temple Mount was raised, and therefore it used to be much higher, and thus the amount of rock that was exposed was much smaller. Because in the Second Temple era... We didn't have the, the Ark. Ark is the, made famous in 1981 by Steven Spielberg and Harrison Ford, but the Ark, which was the most important uh, vessel in, 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 the, in the Holy of Holies, in fact, the only vessel in the Holy of Holies, that we only had the first temple, so not, not the second temple, and that was only visited once a year by the high priest on Yom Kippur. But he would do the Ketores sacrifice, the incense sacrifice, Second temple, you don't have that. So what they do? There was a rock, says the Mishnah. And the rock was yay high off the ground. This is called the Evan Shasiyah. This is the foundational stone. But the Talmud tells, tells us it was this big. It was, you know, three tfachim. So that's maybe, I don't know, um, about a foot high off the ground. If you look at it now, it's like 20 feet off the ground. Uh, but that, that's a result of what Hadrian did to lower the Temple Mount. But he kept the stone, it unearthed the body of the stone. Here's a question. How are we going to rebuild this temple if nobody can, none of the Jews can go into this <laughs> Temple Mount area because they've all either been in a hospital or been in a cemetery or been to a funeral or whatever? Yeah, that's a good question. So, thankfully, it's one of the problems that we'll have. Um, but it's actually it's not such a hard problem as people might think because there is a law that says that tuma hutra betzibur, which means impurity is permissible in public, which means that if the majority of Jews are impure, then certain parts of impurity would be, would be allowed, certain, uh, uh, certain um, transgressions that would otherwise be prohibited would be allowed. So, for example, when they, uh, in the f- second temple period, when they, were, when they found... Um, a flask of oil that was pure. So that's the same purity and impurity, right? It was a pure flask of oil, lasted for eight days. Great miracle. In truth, if they didn't have the pure oil, if it didn't last for eight days, they could have used impure oil because for a public function, if there's no access to pure oil, then you could use impure as well. Right, so it's so hard to find a red heifer. In fact, in Texas, there's loads and there's tens of thousands of red heifers in, in, in Texas. Uh, the problem is finding not find a red heifer, find a red heifer, red heifer that fulfills all the characteristics. Yeah, but the the, the prevailing uh, perspective is that when we're ready for it, we'll have the red heifer, 
and we'll figure out a way to build a temple. In fact, there's actually a discussion, will we actually need to build it or will it miraculously descend from heaven amidst smoke and fire? So why does this impurity last forever? If you only had like one exposure to a dead body, what, yeah, because 10 it, years old, why at age 70 you're still considered... Impure well, it's remember. It, we have to. It's not dirty. Like it's not. It's no, a, no. It, of course, I understand. The, because the Torah also outlines how to reverse that. Ah. Right, how to reverse the impurity. So, like Sandy said, uh, we have to take a red heifer. Oh, you got to slaughter it in the temple. Oh. You got to bring it outside the temple. You got to burn it. You got to mix it with special water and special other ingredients. And you have to have a pure person sprinkle it on an impure person, and then the pure person himself becomes impure, but everyone he sprinkles becomes pure. So you don't do this for, let's say, the whole nation, you do it for an individual? <laughs> what? I said you weren't hanging No, actually, no, no, so it's what not. What happens that's with the man who purifies <laughs> Well, everybody. okay, but he, well, he, he, right, but he, but there's many different degrees of purity and impurity, and his degree of impurity does not, does not mean that he needs you know, they have the red heifer treatment. He just needs to wait. He's impure till the evening, and then he goes to a mitzvah, and then that expunges the impurity. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was a mitzvah for me when I was in North Carolina in training. It was, uh, it was a mitzvah for me to help wash a body down that had died. That was uh, part of the process, yeah. Yeah, part of the process. Oh, yeah, and, and there's mitzvahs to bury the dead and to tend yeah. to the dead, like... Yeah, so it's not a bad thing. It just means that the temple demands a certain degree of, of purity and almost asceticism. Mm-hmm. So why is the regular synagogue stone? Because that's not it's the not law. Practical. It's not the law. Well, I mean, why it's not the law? It isn't. It's just the temple is special. And, and you're right that the temples, like synagogues, are called mitdash are called mini temples. Yeah, it's like a branch of the old temple. Yeah, but it's not, it's not, but it's not real. It's, it's a mini temple, yes, because... It's also idea of service of God, of worship of God. We go to pray, we go to relate to God, we go to connect to God. And that was done, of course, on a much grander scale in the Temple of Jerusalem, but on a more minor scale today in, in, in synagogues uh, Are everywhere. Are Yes, men, women, children, everyone. Yeah, and this is a big deal because, like, uh, th- this was such a central part of Jewish life when the Temple was in existence, we can't imagine because three times a year, the entire nation, men, women, children, descend upon, descend or ascend upon Jerusalem for the pilgrimages. They have the sacrifice, for example, that's mandatory upon everyone, the Pesach sacrifice. So, you know, we have a Seder. The Seder is actually a reformulation of what used to happen in Jerusalem. Again, we get the whole family gets together. We have a festive meal. We have matzah. Like that part, you know, that is a... Um, that's supposed. That's created to mirror what used to happen. But to to do that, to eat that uh, sacrifice, which is, it's just meat. We'll get the sacrifice in a little bit. Sacrifice is just meat um, to consume it. But to get, you have to be ritually pure. So there was frantic preparations. Everyone got a, just like, you know, everyone gets uh, their stool supplies before stool. Everyone got their like Passover supplies before Passover. And part of that was making an appointment at the local red heifer guy. Like, that's what it was. Like, you, you went there, you, you took a number, and you wait for your turn to get ready for 
for the celebration. By the way, they had a backup date. This is a date called Pesach Sheni, the second Passover. What's the second Passover? Pesach Passover is people that weren't able to do it because either they were out of town or they were busy, they were sick or they were ill or they were impure and they couldn't get pure in time. They have a backup date. They are able to do Passover a month later. It's a makeup date. It's like uh, the people that missed the SAT, you know. Rain day. <laughs> yeah, so it's, so it's a double header, right? Yeah. They missed the baseball game. So each village would have a butcher, so to speak, with a red heifer? Well, I think they would, they, would, they would probably go to Jerusalem to do it. Because remember, you, you, you know, it's like part of a full, ser- full suite of services. Uh, you go to Jerusalem, you want to make a sacrifice, you, you go next door, you get the red heifer thing done. You know. Can you have one red heifer for the whole family? Or the whole oh, no. One red heifer for millions of people. Because oh, okay. a, a red heifer gives you about, uh, about 100 pounds of ashes. You need a tiny <laughs> little bit of ashes. Maybe a half a gram of ashes. I think I remember that first red heifer when they inaugurated everything lasted for... Oh, yeah. It lasted for 500 years. One red heifer is, is, an, is plenty. It lasts for hundreds of years, a single red heifer. Because all you need is a little bit of the ashes, and, the, the, and you're mixing it with other, th- with other ingredients that are plentifully available. When they got into the land and they divided up, didn't they separate out the ashes with the different... Makes sense. Um, that everyone could have locally... The Levites were scattered throughout the land. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense, yeah. That makes sense. Yes, yes. Um, I, I always say, uh, maybe in jest, maybe not, that every uh, Islamic structure has a crescent on top. I think I might have told you guys this a couple of years ago. Every Islamic structure has a crescent uh, on top of the spire, on top of the roof. There's one famous Islamic structure in the world that has actually a ring instead of a crescent, and that's the Dome of the Rock. So my theory is, is that when the time comes to rebuild the temple, they'll be able to take a, um, a bulldozer and just like clasp it from the bottom and just lift it up and just move it out of the way. Uh, you know, we look at it a big picture as if the, the Muslims are kind of holding the fort for us and keeping it, making sure that it's preserved and making sure that there's nothing. Because remember, Hadrian built a temple for Jupiter there. Like, he built a temple for idolatry there. And the Muslims come, and they're, they're monotheists like we are. That's not our problem with the Muslims. If we have problems, there's nothing to do with, with their belief of God. It's maybe their application of it and their bloodlust. That's a bigger problem for us. Uh, but the Muslims did a fine job of ensuring that there's no idolatry there. So we have to kind of be appreciative in a weird way for that. And when it's our time and hopefully that'll be within our lifetimes as soon as possible, we'll be able to experience that. You know, and I, I've given this advice before. The first thing that you do when you hear that the temple's being rebuilt... Well, for sure. But the, I, I suggest the first thing you do is you book a, you book a flight yeah. to Israel on Passover, because everyone's going to go to Israel, all the Jews. There'll be 15 million Jews in Israel on Passover. It's going to be insane. It's going to be wonderful. The air first will go to the roof. Exactly. So you make sure you have, a, you have an alert. Yeah. Set a Google alert. Messiah arrived. The temple construction is, is begun, beginning. 
Don't wait till the rush, right? Right away, book a flight before the prices go up. Even though, in fairness, what's actually going to happen is be charter flights, and they're gonna, things are going to be a um, they're going to add more flights. Uh, but it, the prices will go up, absolutely. I have a question about the Messiah. Yes. Um, Is it going to be a Messiah like the Christian Messiah being God? No, of course not. So Messiah is is uh, a leader of the people who's going to fulfill some responsibilities. So no, it's it's a human, regular, standard human who lives and breathes and eats and sleeps and will live and will die. It's just a leader, just like Moses and Abraham, great leaders who were humans, but regular, standard issue humans, but became great people and accomplished great things, and led the Jewish people in the positive direction. Uh, it's and, to somebody from a political perspective. Well, someone right? like, like Moshe. Moshe is a yeah. political leader, but he's also, of course, the religious leader. The right descendant of David. The right descendant of David, who was going to rebuild the temple, reinstitute uh, sacrifices. I actually have it written down here. So there may be somebody who's living now who would be... Yeah. Bring the Jews back to Israel, bring the Jews back to Torah... Reinstitute the laws, the Jewish law, to reinstitute the agricultural laws in Israel. Um, yeah, that might be the greatest That's accomplishment. Yeah, they'll be able to streamline. They'll cut through red tape. Well. It's a, it's a, it's a, I don't know what he said. I think he was just trying to min. He was also, he was also a bleeding heart liberal. Um, and he was a liberal. oh yeah, big time. Even though it was a tough military guy, it's. it's I was gonna say he was a tough customer. Oh yeah, like yeah, like Ben Gurion as well. These were they were socialists. Um, the not Baden. Baden. Baden was the first. The ceasefire was the first. So if dynamite those two structures. There would be no end of the war. He wanted to, we captured a lot, captured the, uh, Jerusalem. Yeah. Let's he, hold on to it. He, he was Otherwise a, there would be no, there, there would be no. The pushback you're saying would have just been extreme. Yeah. Isn't it a little naive to think that the Muslims are going to just say, okay, now you can build your temple? Well, the Muslims are not okay with us being there to begin with. Right. So we, are we supposed to fold over and die because they want us to die? No, no, but you're talking as if in the next 20 years we're going to have this beautiful building well, there. Well, in 1943, you wouldn't believe that in the next 20 years we'd have a state in Israel to begin with. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's, but, it, but it's not so hard to imagine. Remember, how many Muslim structures are being destroyed every day now by ISIS? Yeah, like these things happen. And you know what? The world makes a big deal about it, but everyone forgets about it, right? You know what kind of chaos is going on with these, when Muslims are perpetrating throughout the world every day or every week? We hear these slaughterings, mass slaughterings of innocent people. Yeah, but they're a billion and a half Muslims. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but they're, but they're, but most of them are not that sophisticated and you know, most of them hate us anyhow. They want us dead anyhow. They want us dead anyhow. Yeah, the amount of 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 of, of Muslims that support this kind of jihadist violence is astonishing. So even if it's only 10, 20, 30%, it's still hundreds of millions of people. Like it's you know, Exactly, 100%. You don't have to worry about yeah, for sure. 
I went to a fundraising guy. This was 30 years ago down at Clear Lake. This uh, uh, rabbi type came through and he was soliciting funds and all that sort of thing and um, pushing for the building of the third temple. And uh, I said, listen, I said, if you destroy the temple up there, it's just now, won't you uh, get the enmity of millions of Muslims? He says, look, he says, if they thought they could whip us, they'd have been in there last week. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Okay, so I want to just quickly go through um, what the temple consists of. So first of all, the way the Ramam describes it, um, he looks at two central roles of the temple. Uh, that is, number one, to be a place of sacrifice, and number two, a place of pilgrimage, place where we go. Um, uh, we'll get to a little bit more of kind of the idea behind that. What's, what's the idea of having a location on earth, on terra firma, here, where we live, which is almost from a different universe, right? It's a spiritual place that is captured in a physical structure, an edifice. It's, it's, it's an interesting idea. Uh, he goes through the history of where it was and where, where it traveled and where it became, um, and then he says, they are, what are the critical elements of, 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 a, of a temple? So there's a holy site, there's four sections of the temple. There's the, um, you know, different parts where different people ought to go. So like, for example, the Kodesh, which is known as the, the holy place. Unless you're a Kohen, you can't go in there. And the holy of holies, unless you're the Kohen God, the high priest, on the holiday of Yom Kippur, you can't go there. And then there, there's different parts where you could go and what you could do, where you could participate, etc. And there's seven core vessels. The seven core vessels are an altar. That's going to be, there's going to be two altars. One of them is like a really small, nice gold one. Looks like, a, like a, those old postal boxes, you know. Um, and that was, the, that was in the holy. And then there's a huge one that had a 60-foot ramp where... They walked up the ramp and down the ramp, and on top there were a bunch of fires. Uh, that's, uh, that's the big one, so that's two, plus the ramp is three. And then there was a, like a sink, uh, a copper sink, where there were people would wash their hands, the coins would wash their hands, hands and feet. Um, a menorah, we know famously, the menorah is the symbol of the state of Israel. The menorah uh, is where they would light the, the candles. A shulchan, which is a table on which the showbreads were. Uh, and that's that. So, menorah, shulchan, kior, tumas beachs, aron, and, and uh, aron is the, is the ark, and the, uh, and the ramp. So that's basically what it is. Why is it called the vessel? Well, it's a clee. It's, it's something that's used for a purpose. So a vessel, maybe a, a utensil is better. Yeah, it doesn't have to be uh, a container. Yeah. Okay, so so that, that that's the idea of a temple, kind of in antiquity and maybe in the future, uh, God willing, uh, in our we'll be able to experience it. Now, in contemporary Jewish life, so life today as a Jew, we invoke the temple every day, multiple times. So, for example, three times we pray every day. I'll read you the prayer. And to Jerusalem, your city, in compassion, may you return, and may you rest within it, as you have spoken. May you rebuild it, 
soon in our days as a structure that is eternal, and the throne of David speedily within it may you establish. Blessed are you, Hashem, builder of Jerusalem. That's a blessing we say three times a day when we're praying to rebuild the temple, reinstitute Davidic dynasty over Israel, and bring God into our world. That's one example. I'll read you another example here. Be favorable, once again, we read this at least three times a day. Four times on Shabbos and five times on Yom Kippur. Be favorable, Hashem, our God, to your, toward your people, Israel, and towards the prayer. That seems to be not related to the temple. And restore the service to the holy of holies of your temple, the fire offerings of Israel, and the prayer with love, accept favorably, and it may be to your favor always the service of Israel, your people. So that's linking prayer that we have today to temple service and sacrifices that we had yesterday, in yesteryear we're hoping to restore, which is an interesting idea. And I'll give you one more prayer here. And these, these we do multiple times a day, so a thousand times a year you say these prayers. May it, be the, may it be the will before you, Hashem our God and the God of our forefathers, that the temple, the holy temple, shall be rebuilt speedily in our days. Grant us our shear in your Torah, so that there, in the temple, we may serve you with reverence as in the days of old and as in the years gone by, and pleasing to Hashem, let the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem be as in the days of old and in years gone by. We're invoking the temple in Jerusalem and the sacrifices and the activities of the temple uh, every year, uh, every day. Break up zone we also mentioned it as well. This this one is from the end of the Amidah services. Break up zone we, we mentioned it as well. It's everywhere in Jewish life. And not only that, if you actually look at the 613 mitzvahs, there's hundreds of them that are only applicable either in the temple or when the temple is in existence. So, for example, we cannot have an institution of Jewish court of law with all the laws uh, of Israel being the, the laws of the land, laws of Torah being the laws of the land of Israel, unless there is actually a temple. So we can't do um, certain uh, capital punishments, certainly not. Yeah. Even criminal and civil law were curtailed uh, because there's no temple. That's uh, one example. But of course, there's hundreds of laws associated with sacrifices and purity and impurity. We look at the Mishnah, 63 words of the Mishnah, right? A third of that is exclusively dealing with either sacrifices or with p- laws of purity that are relevant primarily in the times of the temple. Yeah, so he was executed under Israeli law, not under Torah law. Oh, okay. <laughs> on, yeah, under Torah law, there'll be a lot of people that'll be executed. I think all these all these terrorists with blood on their hands would be executed. I think it's a good idea to reinstitute that as well. I think terrorists should be executed. Yeah. Do you think they should raise the houses of terrorists? Oh, yeah, well, that, that already went through the Supreme Court in Israel. And it was proven with data that it's a deterrent. It saves. It's like, I, I don't. I'm not an expert. I don't know. I don't know the. the I'm not an expert in the, uh, in the in the in the statistics. But they proved it enough to convince the courts that it actually prevents. You know. Yeah. Exactly. It's a. It's a. It's an effective deterrent. Listen. You know. It's. My challenge to it is that you are holding people who didn't do the act accountable for the person who did. That's my challenge with that. Yeah, but it's also interesting because I, mean, I don't want to be held accountable for what my kids do. Yeah, but what's also interesting is that is that very often, 
<laughs> Very often, um, the parents are like so proud, their kids are martyrs. And it's crazy what goes on. I appreciate that it's crazy, but that's not my issue. Yeah, well. At some point in time, the person who does the act is responsible for it. Many times, I think these terrorists are young. They, and, and they are maybe past the age of accountability, which would, let's just say, for example, it's 20. Sometimes these terrorists, that, that man who killed that little girl in her sleep, was a teenager. Mm. What does it say about the parents with a teenager to we do that? We have children in this country who do horrific crimes as teenagers do. I don't know what point the parents have I don't know of any story, of any story of, of someone in this country maybe there are examples, doing something as heinous as that. I wouldn't argue that. My, my, to kill a 13-year-old girl randomly right. in her sleep, slitting the throat, it's, un, it's unimaginable the, the, the savagery that these people are capable of. Yes. And if someone grows up in, such, in a house that, that, that that's what they're taught, destroy their house. I would, put their, I would imprison their parents as well. Whatever's the deterrent. It's insane what goes on. Like, what kind of world are we living in? They're dressed up with little uniforms and so on, and they learn how to kick down an IDF door. I don't think the international yeah, court is, looks kindly on that. On destroying the house? Okay, well, the international court uh, doesn't look kindly well, on anything. Mean, that they don't seem to be coming to Israel. Well, no, they're not in Israel's defense for anything, but I mean, you know. Yeah, but I'm saying look for they, Israel is a sovereign nation, I mean, and they have to do whatever it takes to. Uh, a, and and. Well, and there was a story in the uh, I read in the Bloomberg yeah. Business Week, sorry, in the Economist about uh, the drone strikes that the Obama administration yeah. pioneered, where they're they're just doing these drone strikes and they're killing hundreds of terrorists, but also hundreds of uh, civilians. civilians yeah. And and you know what? They're in the United States. You know they, they can do whatever they want. Who's going to stop them? Right? <laughs> they have a permanent seat in the Security Council and they pay everyone's bills. So what are you going to do? Right? And their kids. And their kids. I mean, they were given a warning that said, move away from him because something you have never seen before is about to happen. And those, some people did back away from him, but... And I also think that it's it's not as bad. It's, it's not as bad to hold the parents accountable. You know, let the parents suffer for what their kids did as opposed to, let's say, letting kids suffer what their parents did. I think that's worse, you know? So if, like, there's... In Israel, you know, if they if they have a, if there's a terrorist and they see him in a room playing with his kid, they won't they won't destroy him. They won't they won't send a a uh, an, an Apache helicopter and blow up the structure. If there's a child, even though it's it's very possible that there'd be more innocent bloodshed if we don't put him down right now, but the, they won't do it. I would not want to be the person that had to make that call. Make those decisions. Yeah. It's war, you know. I understand it. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, innocent civilians die in war. It's easier the second. And third, you know? <laughs> but you know, but it's, it's and and it's it's not uh, it's not it's not Israel that uh, is the instigators. That's clear. And Netanyahu famously said, "If uh, if the Palestinians put down their war and, and their weapons and their violence, there would be no war. And if the Israelis." Did did it? There will be no Israel. That's right. That's right. That then they'll be peace. For the life of me, I can't understand why anyone 
want their child to kill someone. I don't understand. These are the these are different people. I understand that they're training them, but as a parent of two kids, and now I have a granddaughter, I can't imagine training a child to kill another human. Or it's being done. Oh, I know that it is. And being blown up in the in, in the interest. Either way. So the temple. The temple is a very significant uh, element in Jewish life. Uh, so there's hundreds of mitzvahs that relate to the temple. The amount of detail the Torah goes into describing uh, the role and the creation and the details in the vessels and in the Mishnah and the tabernacle. But also it's the marker of the rise and fall of Jewish life in Israel. So we look at the destruction of the first temple as being the end of an era. You know, it's like personifies the era. So yes, there were Jews that lived there afterwards, but that, that moment is always marked as a transition moment. In fact, the Jewish fast days. Uh, Jewish fast days, there's four fast days that are associated with the destruction of the temple. Ninth of Av, which is the day of the destruction of both temples. The tenth of Teveth is when the, the Jerusalem was encircled. Seventeenth uh, of Tammuz, which the walls of Jerusalem were breached, and the fast of Gedaliah, is the day when Gedaliah, who was the governor of, of Israel, he was assassinated. So that's, he was, that's that kind of the end of, of Jewish life in, in, in Israel. Now, indeed, so out of six fast days that we have a, a, throughout the year, four of them, so 67% of them have to do with, with, with the temple. So what I want to kind of just get into like the idea, what's the core idea of the temple and what's the reasons behind um, the sacrifices? So what, what has to be clear is that, you know, certainly, well, let's, let's start with the, with, with the role of the temple as an entity on its own merit. So I found in the uh, Midrash a fascinating idea. So if you look at when the temple was built, it was right after the Jewish people got the Torah. In fact, the day where Moshe came down and gave us the second set of tablets, which is actually Yom Kippur, the next day they started building the tabernacle, which is the core of the temple. So those two are very much inextricably linked. So the Midrash gives us a fa- fascinating Midrash here. Let me read it to you. The Almighty said to Israel, I gave you my Torah. I am now sold to you. I am bound to you. It gives us a parable. There's a parable. A king who had a single daughter. So another prince from some other nation came and he married her. So his lone daughter is now married to someone else, to some other king. So the, you know, they have the wedding ceremony, and it's fine. And the young prince and the prince and the princess, they want to go back to, their, to his, home, his home place. So the king tells him, the daughter that I gave you, that's my only one. She's my lone daughter. I'm so connected to her, I can't, I can't possibly be away from her. But to tell you not to take her is also not, not fair because she's your wife. So listen, what we're going to do. Do me a favor. Wherever you go, make me a little... Give me a guest room. Wherever you are, let me have a guest room. So I'll be next to you. I'll be close to you. Because I can't abandon my daughter. So too. The Almighty said to the Jewish people, I gave you my Torah. 
It's my Torah. I gave it to you. It's yours. Take it. But I, 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 can't, I can't manage being away from it. So therefore, wherever you go, you have, make a room for me, make a guest room for me, that I'll be there. And what's that? Make me a temple. Make me a mishkan. See the idea of, of, of the Torah being connected to the temple. And, it's, and this is re- essentially what binds us to God. We have, a temp- we have God's Torah. We're forever connected to God. We're, so to speak, we married into the family, so to speak, of God. Of course, God doesn't have a family, but that's the, the, the metaphor. The metaphor is that now we're forever connected to God. And God's connected to us. And by us having His Torah, we have God's, so to speak, daughter. And he cannot bear to be distant from it. So therefore, now, as, as if God's coming to our world, this kind of changes like our perspective, you know. We have God's Torah. It's as if we have the, the daughter of God, of course, the, not literally, but it's as if, you know, that, that, that's the metaphor. The metaphor is, is that we have the, thing, the entity that God's most cherished possession, we have it here as humans, as mortal humans living on our earth that's full of so much falsehood. We have it. And now, as a result of that, we also have God here living with us, so to speak. <coughs> An idea of Torah, which is an entity of total spirituality that's presented in a physical way. It's given to us in language that we understand. The Torah giving us instructions about what to do my grandfather used to be this example. There's a famous Mishnah that says, if I sell you a cow, cows in the uh, backyard, or better yet, my ox gores your cow. Your cow is pregnant. Now your cow's dead. But we also see that there's a dead calf as well. We don't know what happened. Did the cow, was the calf born and then died independently? Or did my ox goring your cow cause the miscarriage and the death of your calf? And the question is, how much do I have to pay? Because I'm liable to pay what my ox uh, damages. That's a case of the Gemara. That's a very human life question, right? But that's Torah. Because Torah takes on the form of our world. God's Torah, total spirituality, total purity, is now here clothed in our world's terms. That's exactly what the temple is. The temple is God's abode. It's a spiritual housing, so to speak, for God. But it's clothed in physical terms. Like, it's as if we have, you know, there's a building, a structure made out of wood and various fabrics and various metals, right? And this it grants us a touch point between the physical and spiritual world. Just like the Torah. Torah is this touch point in the physical and spiritual world. Just like, by the way, a human is supposed to be is a, a, t- a touch point of physical and spiritual. We have a soul, which is spiritual. We have a body that's beastly. And those two are forged together to create us. The temple mirrors that, and certainly the Torah mirrors that. 
And the idea is, is we select ourselves towards the side of purity and holiness, and we uplift ourselves in totality. Yes. Since there is no temple, where is the guest room? Oh, because we follow Torah, do we become the guest room? Yeah, the question is, what do we do now? The temple is destroyed. Is that your question? Yeah, where is the guest room now? <laughs> Amazing question. Great question. So, the Gemara says, now the temple is destroyed. Amar al-Khiyabar Ami, this is from the uh, Talmud and Brachos. Miyom Shechara Ve'i from the day that the temple was destroyed... The Almighty has in this world only the four cubits of Torah. Which means, the Mishnah goes on to explain that wherever there is Torah study, that's like a mini temple, so to speak. And that's like a mini abode of the Shekhinah. The Mishnah tells us two people study Torah, the Shekhinah is there. And that's like a portable guest room. Shekhinah means God's presence. Right, it's God's presence, right. Why is God's presence in the feminine? Good question. Why not? No, I don't know. Was it an original? It's not, it's not, it's yes. These are good questions. No, Shekhinah is in, is Hebrew words, every old nouns have either masculine or feminine. This one's in feminine. I don't know. Well, because we don't often see God referred to in the feminine, but there are times in which it is, and it makes me wonder why feminine yeah. here. I can look into that and see if I can find the. What if find. there's a, a reason behind. Right, but what's clear is that we're not referring to God Himself. So God Himself does not have gender. Yeah, right. So this is so. So what does the Shekhinah even mean? I always thought it was the feminine side of God. God doesn't have sides. So we got him. We can never, well, never refer to God himself, we right? Well, is it okay? So, so it's interesting because, like, semantics is very important here. Always, not always, but specifically here, God doesn't have any aspects, but God has uh, attributes, which is ways of behavior. So we look at God. We always have to bifurcate between God Himself and God's way of treating us. So God himself is something we cannot wrap our heads around. That's why we don't pronounce God's name, which refers to him himself. All the other names of God are referring to the ways he behaves to us. And that's why we're allowed to pronounce them, because that we can wrap our heads around. We understand when God treats us with mercy, with kindness, or with fury and anger. That makes sense to us. Uh, the existence of God as an entity that does not, is not bound to time and space, so exists simultaneously yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and 500 years ago and 500 years from now, that's something that we cannot understand because that's God's essence and our minds are, are, are formulated uh, as to not understand that because we're, we're limited by the world that we live in. So the Shekhinah does not refer to God himself or God's aspects or God's entity right, or God's essence or God's you know, feminine aspect. So what exactly it means, I actually had a discussion with someone recently about this. So the way he defined the Shekhinah is uh, it's about us. Shekhinah is always referred to in relationship to people as if it, the Shekhinah is the people's capacity 
to have God in their life. That's what he said. But as a quick caveat, he says his definition changes every day. So it's not, it's not, a, it's not a clear thing. So, so that's why we just avoid the problem because it's, we, we, we just translate it as God's presence because the word shechina, by the way, is from the word, same word of a neighbor. Someone who lives somewhere, someone who resides somewhere, is a, uh, to live somewhere. Is so it's to, like an indwelling? It's like a dwelling, yeah. But what does it mean God's dwelling? God obviously is not someone who's actually like the neighbor you go to knock on the door to borrow three eggs, right? So what does it mean? It's, it's, not, it's not an easy thing to find and thus, you know, why is it feminine is, is all related to that question. Could it's not like an easy question protection? to answer. Huh? Could it be like a protection where a house or a place where you live, you'd like to think it's your protection from the outside world where there's an apartment, igloo, tent, or whatever? So maybe the idea... A housing of some sort. By the way, what is the Hebrew word for a tabernacle? Mishkan. What's the Hebrew word for Shechina? Shechina. Mishkan, Shechina. It's the same root. The word Mishkan means dwelling or domain, and the word Shechina means dwelling or domain. So those two are connected. I would have never came to that because I don't have a background in Hebrew. I always looked at it, obviously wrong, as just um, part of a duality. Right, but that's problematic because we don't, we don't, we don't, God does not have these components, right? God is one. But God relates to us in different ways. So we always say the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. We don't say that as if God was one. But well, no, it means, that, it means that if you looked at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you would see that they're always reflecting the, the idea of God within them. It doesn't mean that there's different gods. Of course not. It's the same God who Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our forefathers, and we're invoking them, they lived with this as a priority in their lives. And that's why we're mentioning it. We're mentioning that we're trying to evoke a positive response, so to speak, in our prayer, because we are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they, more than anyone else, were living representations of the idea of God, and therefore... God's name can be linked to the God of Abraham because Abraham demonstrated this idea with his entire life. That's what it means. That doesn't mean that it's different uh, components, God forbid. Okay, so, so that's the idea of the temple in, in general. Now, what about the sacrifices? So sacrifices is a big, big, lots of um, reasons given behind the sacrifices. So. Yes. Torah. Where is that said? Yeah, where is it said? That's brought down in the book of Brachos on page 17A. Sorry, 8A. And is that in Talmud? In Talmud, yeah. And there's a Mishnah as well. The Mishnah, I think it's in the fifth chapter of of Perkevot. I can look that up for you as well. Uh, It says, Yachid, uh, 10 people studying Torah. What does that mean? What's it like when there's uh, two people studying Torah and even one person is studying Torah, the Shekhinah is with it. So that's a mission as well. So it even precedes the Talmud. Um, but when you understand the connection, this Midrash kind of wraps it all together that God gave us his Torah, next day we have to start making him a portable guest room, so to speak. So also, not, not to belabor this, um, one person studying Torah as opposed to two people studying Torah, the Shekhinah is still present? Yeah, so the, 
So you look at, if you look at the words, it's a little bit different. It's as if they, um, when it says there's two people studying, it means the Shekhinah is between them. It's among them. As opposed to when it says the sh- one person, the Shekhinah is there. With them, not, not among him, but with them. That's what, that, that's what makes a difference. If you have ten people, it's, well, ten people is already, it's, it's a block, it's, it's a minion. You know, that is a much more powerful um, a platform of Torah study. Two people studying together, it's still the Torah's alive, more alive, and therefore the relationship to God is more alive. And even one person in Torah, yes, the Shekhinah is there, and, but it's, it's just with him. It's not quite kind of there, out in the open, so to speak. Okay, so what about sacrifices? So this is uh, it's an interesting um, analysis. So, for example, the Rambam, he contradicts himself. He doesn't contradict himself. He gives different reasons for it. Um, if you understand the different roles that he's trying to do with his different books, it makes sense. So the Rambam has a book called Guide to the Perplexed. Morin Nevuchim. The Morin Nevuchim is written uh, with a certain perspective that's dominated by Greek philosophy. And he is trying to give a rational approach, or at least what was then a rational approach to Judaism, with the prevailing philosophical norms. Um, therefore, he gives a very, a very rigid reason why we have sacrifices. Uh, and then he has a different book called Mishnah Torah, which is not necessarily, it's not a philosophical book, it's, it's more purely Torah book, and he gives a different reason. So the, these things might both be true, even though they might sound uh, contradictory. Uh, the Ramam in Moronavuchim, he outlines all the mitzvahs and he explains them in the lens, in the, through the perspective of the prevailing philosophy, as if someone would say today, uh, you know, we take precepts, and mores that are common in our world, and we show how that's, you know, how the Torah reflects that. So I'll give you an example. I like to say this example. It's a book written in 1957 called uh, Cognitive Dissonance, and it describes an idea that the Torah describes. And you look at the Constitution, all men are created equal. Well, where did that come from? Well, that, the Torah talks about that. And you go to any self-help person, and you go to any of their advice and say, well, I can see any idea that's true, I can trace it back to Torah. And that, if you do a, a study of that, that's a very powerful book to show that what, 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 you know, what took the world thousands of years to get, we've had already for millennia. That's a very powerful idea. That can be said as why the Rambam wrote his book. So he says, why do we do sacrifice? Animal sacrifice. It sounds so... It sounds so. Uh, I don't know if it's is it cruel. I don't know if it's quite cruel, but it, it, yeah, it's, it sounds ancient. It sounds like uh, uh, the the mode of of uh, of worship of God. That's it's it's obsolete. So he's like this. He says the Jewish people were living in a pagan world, right? Remember, they uh, paganism was popular for. Up until very recently, and certainly within Christianity, it has its version of paganism. It's not quite the paganism of the Romans or the Greeks, but it still has shades of paganism. Um, but the Jews were a lone beacon of monotheism in a world in a sea of paganism. And the paganistic practices were very much 
uh, one of sacrifices, and animal sacrifices, even human sacrifices. That was the way of relating to a divine idea. That was what they did. And says the Rambam, in a kind of very reasonable, pragmatic way, when God gave the Jews Torah, he gave them a way to relate to him, to God himself, with the Torah. But the methods that were used to relate to idols were kind of updated, were reformed to use those same methods to relate to God. It's a very, it's a very modern approach to look at uh, Torah as being almost prag- pragmatic instructions, right? It's like the Almighty is saying to you, okay, this is the way people worship. We're going to worship the same way, but to a different entity. It's a, it's, it's a very problematic idea, problematic teaching, because you actually look at, you know, even Adam is doing sacrifices. So there's something more than just, Adam is before paganism. So, that, you know, so it's, it cannot be just that, but that element is certainly true as well. That, and we find other examples um, in, in Jewish life where it's almost reactionary, um, where we're taking the um, prevailing attitudes of the time and, and we're modernizing it, or, not, or we're Torahizing it. I'll give you an example. This might be a little controversial, even a little more controversial. At the end of the second, John. Uh, but uh, we have the idea of slavery in the Torah. So slavery in the Torah, it's called slavery. It's actually not slavery. It's not, it's not slavery by any way that we define slavery. Um, why? Because the Talmud even says, the Talmud gives the laws of slavery. And it says that if you actually buy a slave, you actually buy a master. Because it's, you have to treat them so well that it, it's really a master. So for one example, if you have two pillows, obviously you have one pillow in your house. Sorry, you have only one pillow. You have to give it to the slave. If a master strikes the slave, the slave goes free. If the master kills the slave, the master is executed. Like this is not the slavery that we are accustomed to. You know, but it's it's it, slavery was existing then and okay, what's a Jewish kind of take on slavery? Slavery is you buy yourself a master. Right. So but what about today? You know, t- would we have temple is rebuilt, right? We have Jewish law in full effect. Are we all gonna buy slaves? I would say we probably wouldn't. But in a world where slaves are everywhere, how would the Torah give us slavery? Well, it would give you slavery in a very, very moral way. And to us, we moved away from that, and therefore, um, it's likely that we won't have slaves at that time. Uh, you said about the temple, when the temple was rebuilt. Now, did you explain who would be built it? Would it be the Jew or the non-Jew? Uh, Messiah is going to lead the effort. There are those opinions that say it's going to emerge from heaven in smoke and fire. Um, it's not clear, and the Rambam makes it very clear that we don't know what's going to happen until it happens, so we'll wait and see. The, the point against me is uh, on these sacrifices. <clears throat> well, you do this, you do that. The surgical requirements of various things, that do wash this, wash that, and then a satisfying aroma. Well, it's pretty hard uh, to equate a satisfying aroma with a burning body. Uh, and 
as I understand it, later on, I really, it really stuck me pretty good. But what, as I understand it, really later on was the satisfying aroma is more or less you obeyed my laws. Yeah, okay, well, but let, let, let's establish one thing before we get into kind of the next level of discussion here. Oh. Well, one thing is abundantly clear, and everyone agrees with this, that sacrifices are not for God. God doesn't need sacrifices, right? If you accept the Jewish definition of God, clearly God doesn't need any sacrifices. If we're doing it, it's for us. It's for us. It's a way of relating to God, and it's a way of becoming better people. That's the idea. Um, now, like I said, the, the Rambam and what he says in God's Blood is a very um, controversial one. Many people disagree with him. Um, if you understand the context of, what he, of how, why he's trying to say that, it makes a little bit more sense. In the book of, of, Mish, of Mishnah Torah, he writes it as in the form of a chok. As in, it's one of those things that we do without knowing any reason. So he kind of shifts a little bit. He pivots away from that. But the, I think the, uh, the most powerful idea is what we find in the Ramban, Nachmanides. I want to read to you guys here what he says. And indeed, when we see what he's describing and how a person can change with bringing a sacrifice, it, it really, I think, will resonate. Um, but it's also important to remember, like you bring a sacrifice, you're killing an animal. But every time you eat a, 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 a deli sandwich, you're also consuming dead animal. Like it's, not, like, it's not such a radical idea to kill an animal and to consume its meat. It's really not such a hard thing to, to, to wrap our heads around. Like, it's like, you know, uh, sacrifice. That's what it is, really. Like you're killing an animal and you're eating the meat. Um, but it's done in a way that it's also, it's a mitzvah. So, so what's the meaning behind it is our question. Absolutely, of course. Yes. Yeah, and in fact, all, all kosher animals have their vital signs both by the throat. Uh, the non-kosher animals have one vital sign by the throat and one vital sign by the back of the neck. Thus, if you have kosher food, kosher animals, you know that the animal died instantly. As opposed to, if you have a non-kosher animal, you know that the animal did not die instantly because one vital sign is over here and one vital sign is over there. So until you cut through the entire head, the animal's alive and suffering. How cool is that? I know. Some of the European nations are trying to... Yeah, ironically, they look at at They, they at stun them first or they uh, sedate them before they kill them. They stun them first. problem is if that, that, that may, may make uh, observing the laws of kosher impossible. And it's ironic that the people that are so, are so caring about the uh, welfare... Of animals, where oh, they're caring. Exactly. Well, exactly. Controversy about which is the best it's, way and all this stuff. It's, it's, uh, there is still a lot of latent anti-Semitism in Europe, I assure you. Okay, let me read the Ramban here. The very powerful idea. And he says, I'm going to give you a reason why we have sacrifices. He says, a, a, the actions of people, they are um, in the form of, of thought, of speech, and of action and activities. Therefore, when someone sins, they, they bring a sacrifice, and the sacrifice repairs, so to speak, the man on every stage of their behavior. How so? Bringing a sacrifice is a special text that you're supposed to say. So sins that you do with your mouth, right? Now you're kind of undoing it with the text of the sacrifice. And then there are certain parts of the animal that are burned, ones that you don't eat. And what happens when you see an animal? So imagine you're leading the animal. 
Just think about this, what it's like. You go to Jerusalem, you buy an animal, and you bring it to the temple. You're walking this cute little animal, this sheep or this, this goat, right? And you bring it there, and you kind of you develop a relationship with it, right? And you bring it there, and you see it. You give it to the Kohen, and they, they kill the animal. And they take the blood, and they sprinkle the blood, and do all these processes, and you see the animal, you see the innards of the animal, the animal you were leading with prior. What does that do to you? Like, how does that awaken you? A, to the fact that, you know, that could have been you, right? Remember, anytime you sin against God, any sin against God is a rebellion against God. Right? Thankfully, the Almighty has a very long leash with us. But says the Ramban here that you're supposed to think when you bring the sacrifice, and you, you have to be there, you have to experience and participate it. You're supposed to think that when you sin to God, it's appropriate that your blood should be spilled. You, how could you rebel against God? How could you do that? God, creator of heaven and earth, who gives you so much, and you say, what you say is not important to me? It's treason. Treason of the highest order. Yeah, but the Almighty is uh, kind to us, and He's merciful to us, and He allows us to have, you know, time. But, but is it, are we supposed to just do that in perpetuity? Well, you bring a sacrifice. No, it's not personal shaming. No, of course not. It's it's positive building. It's not it's not it's not negative. It's positive, and you know, and you're, and you're supposed to have this experience of of bringing the animal, and of of coming in, you know, of of verbalizing not to other people but to yourself your sin, verbalizing to God, and to see the animal, and that's that that is, it's shaking. It's terrifying, but it's also going to help you. It's going to help you find perspective in life. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. And being face-to-face with that idea and that recognition makes the likelihood of us living our life to the max go up. If you're living every day like it's your last, you'll accomplish the world. If you're living every day with the recognition of that who knows we're living at the mercy of God, who knows what you, you can accomplish? Change everything. You bring the animal, bring the sacrifice. And yes, it's 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 visceral, it's it's traumatic. But that's that's a very positive experience for you. And you do that and you know, you'll think about life differently. Well, I always thought about sacrificing what was yours, so you're Taking away, you know, you have your lamb or sheep or whatever, and it's yours, and you're have, you're sacrificing it to atone for. Yeah, that is an el- there's an element that's. I'm going to read, read you these words here. I'll give you a direct translation. In order that a man shall think when he does the sacrifice that he sinned to God with his with his body and soul, and it's appropriate that his blood should be shed and his body should be burned, if not for the kindness of God, who took as in exchange the, the animal. And that provides atonement for him. That his blood, that the animal's blood should be instead of my blood, that the animal's soul should be, is my soul, should be instead of my soul, that the animal's limbs should be instead of my limbs. And the parts of the animal, the meat, it gets consumed by the Kohens, and the fact that I'm 
contributing to the Kohen, to the spiritual oh, leaders. Well, some, you eat part of it, and certain parts are given, right? But the, 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 the spiritual, relig- religious leaders of the people are the ones that dedicate themselves to the Torah. They're going to consume the meat that I donated, and that's why, and that, that's to provide atonement for him. And... Yeah, of course. There's different kinds. I, I don't want to get into the details. Um, but certainly, like, this is a powerful idea. I think it's powerful for us today as well. Like, when we're, tr- when we're praying, we're trying to recreate that experience. It's much harder. To recreate that experience, that seriousness, that confrontation with God and yourself and, and thinking about your life and your priorities and your ideals and what you're living for, that's what we're trying to do with our, with our prayer. But imagine we could have that experience of bringing a sacrifice to the temple. You've got to prepare before. You've got to make sure you're ritually pure. You, you buy the animal. You watch it. So you bring it there and you see other people doing it. And Think about what kind of impactful experience that has on your life and how, and how you could change. And indeed, I think that's a very powerful idea uh, that we find with, with sacrifices. So, um, in conclusion, we see that the temple is still very much at the center of Jewish life. Um, it was indeed the epicenter of Jewish life, but it's, it's, it's a center of Jewish focus. Uh, it's in, indeed like the Torah is almost a replacement for it, and prayer is a replacement for it. Um, but our hopes is that we can one day, hopefully very soon, actually go to the temple and bring sacrifices and have this experience. And yes, it's, it's traumatic, but that's the point. There are priests today. There are priests t- today that can trace themselves all the way back to, to Aaron. Not very many. Not not very many, but there are some. There are some, um, and you know the the, the Chafetz Chaim, for example, Rabbi Israel Meir Hakohen Kagan. He died in 1933. He was called in his day when he was he was such a venerated leader of the people. He was called Hakohen Agadol, the high priest. And he was a Kohen, because all Kohens are called Kohens. But he was called the Kohen Gadol because he was the great leader of the people and he was also a Kohen. And everyone was certain that if the temple was rebuilt in 1925 or whatever, he would be the high priest because he's the greatest uh, spiritual leader of the people. I'm, I'm not a candidate. I'm not a Kohen. So, so who is there now in Israel? There's lots of, there's lots of Kohens that are, are, are remarkable people. I mean, My brother-in-law is a Kohen. Uh, well, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know who's, how that works and how the selection process works and how the nomination process works. Uh, it's, uh, we'll have to have a Sanhedrin. There's a lot of other parts. You have to have a Sanhedrin. How you read the Sanhedrin. Very interesting, very interesting uh, uh, future awaits us. Collectively as a nation. Okay, guys, I look forward to seeing you guys next time. Lots I have of fun. A non sequitur. Okay. Uh, something that bothered me that happened this week. Uh, there's a rabbi named Luckstein. Orthodox rabbi in New York who was supposed to give the invocation for the Republican convention. Actually, it was Ivanka's rabbi who converted her. He's 84 years old. Who his constituents talked him out of giving the invocation because it was against Trump. Because they were against Trump? Yeah. And he... He backed out. He backed out. I thought that was horrible. Why? Why would it No, why do they do that? So why did he, why, did, yeah, I don't know. Then, the high priest in Israel does not recognize the bonk as a Oh, big deal. So no, so. give it a vacation. I agree. I didn't yeah, think that was It was terrible, person. and it, it didn't look good for the Jewish people. I didn't even know about this. This is news to yeah. me. I heard about that. We hear all sorts when I'm 
one yes. of these camps, that um, the people who were protesting him speaking had gotten the impression he was going to give a political speech. No, they but they said no, it was only well, an invocation. They didn't understand. I don't know. Yeah. No, that's so true. he graciously said, I don't want to cause a... Yeah, well, he's, uh, he's showing up at all in a 